Hello and welcome to the Cowboy Jesus Podcast. This is Steve Poos Benson, the host of the podcast. It is great to come to you today from the basement of Columbine United Church. I have a special guest with me today, Mike Martin, the Executive Director of Raw Tools. And we are going to have a fascinating conversation. Uh, I got to know Mike because on February 25th here at at Columbine United Church, we're going to host a gun buyback program called Guns to Garden Tools, where people actually bring in their guns and they are disarmed or disabled and cut in two, and they are then melted down and turned into into garden tools. More on that kind of at the end of the podcast. But I said that because through this, I've met Mike Martin. This is the first time we've actually sat down together face-to-face. I met you on a Zoom interview. Mm-hmm. Mike is the executive director of Raw Tools out of Colorado Springs and is kind of the the brainchild, right, behind Guns to Garden Tools? A little bit. There's some collaboration across the country that, that kind of came together over the last uh, few years. Great, great. Okay, so... First of all, Mike, I want to know something about who you are as a person. So what do you do when you're not working for raw tools? Do you have hobbies, passions, that kind of thing? Yeah, I got uh, two boys and my wife. Um, we hang out, out a lot, go to parks, um, love the outdoors. I like to kayak. Um, that's something I picked up during the, the COVID era <coughs> that we're in. Um, and, yeah, sports are a big thing. I'm a big Colorado sports Born in Pennsylvania, so even a little bit of those sports. Uh-huh. So I'm excited for the Eagles this week. Oh, that's um, right, Super Bowl. Yeah, so there's uh, big into fantasy sports. So a little bit of anything that can get me active, uh, I tend to enjoy. Cool, good. All right, so the kind of the focus of the conversation with raw tools and guns to garden tools is the whole issue of guns in America and gun violence in America. And so you founded Raw Tools with a friend of yours, right? Shane Claiborne, is that right? Uh, he helped a lot at the very beginning to kind of give us some of that social equity to get us recognized. Uh-huh. Um, he, a lot of people know him because of uh, the great books he's written, The Simple Way in Philly that he's run. And that neighborhood is Kensington, part of Philly, is uh, one of the highest rates of gun violence in the city, often leads the city. Oh, um, gosh. And so... Uh, he had done an event called Jesus Bombs and Ice Cream a year before Raw Tools started. Jesus Bombs and Ice Cream. Yeah, and it's something he teamed up with uh, Ben and Jerry's. (laughs) And just to draw attention to the proliferation of nuclear war and nuclear armament. Uh Uh um, And at that event, he cut an AK-47 in half and and welded uh, a shovel and a rake to it, or a pitchfork maybe. Uh Um, and, And Raw Tools was kind of in the brainstorming phase at that point. But then a year later, we had an AK-47 donated to us, and that was the start of us. Uh, We're based in Colorado Springs. Um, So we we did that. We cut it up in half. And then, uh, uh, you know, uh, right right about that time, Shane called us and asked us to see if we could make a garden tool out of it at another event he wanted to do that at. So um, he's been with us from the beginning um, and just launched Raw Tools Philly uh, in in March this year. So um, we have Raw Tools cooperatives that are growing around the country, but we're based here uh, in Colorado and Colorado Springs. Okay, so what's Raw Tools? Let's talk about Raw Tools. Yeah, so 
Raw is war backwards. Um, <clears throat> we get we get our motivation, our our kind of rootedness in the scriptures in Isaiah and Micah that talk about turning your swords into plowshares, spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and they won't train for war anymore. And then Micah adds a little bit about sitting under your own vine and fig tree in fear of no other. So our programs, we have three programs that are based out of that scripture. Um, Swords to plowshares, pretty straightforward. We're turning guns into garden tools. is what will be uh, part of what we're doing here on February 25th. And um, then the second part is training for War No More. So our War No More programming is sometimes it's nonviolence 101, right? Just people say, if I don't have a gun, what am I going to do instead? And, um, and we go through different ways that uh, people can respond or can plan without using violence when they're confronted in, at various levels. Sometimes that's through our own programming. Often it's in partnership with other organizations, restorative justice, de-escalation, mediation, uh, bystander intervention. And then our last one we call Vine and Fig programming, which is what the buybacks fall under. So we try and recognize influences in society and communities or as local as neighborhoods that encourage violence instead of encourage life. And we try to um, either alter them, reform them, or start something new that, in, that replaces it or offers people alternatives to get resources that they need to live a full life, cultivate life. Um, our mission is to disarm hearts, forge peace, and cultivate justice, all rooted in those, those programming. So with the buyback, we kind of add a raw twist. They're used to you turn in your gun, you get a gift card, and you leave. Well, we kind of center survivors in that. So we have 25 to 30 volunteers that come. A lot of them have been impacted by gun violence. So they might be a part of cutting up the gun. That can be healing for them. They might be a part of accompanying people through the process. So they might be thanking someone for turning in their gun because a gun has harmed them or someone they love. Um, so we really try and change how the narrative, uh, really from the planning of the event all the way towards actually doing the event, um, is different than kind of the uh, almost clinical way that buybacks have been done in the past. <coughs> so raw tools, the foundation of raw tools, is kind of a faith-based a yeah. program. I mean, you're, it motivated you by your faith, mm-hmm. by your Christian faith, and I want to talk a little bit about that because it it's a it's a powerful thing that weaves its way through the work of of raw tools and guns to garden tools. I mean, a lot of these gun to garden tools events are hosted by churches. Although last year you worked with the Denver Broncos, was it also the Denver Broncos and local churches, or was it solely the Denver Broncos? Uh, it was the city of Denver and the city of Aurora with some council people in both cities, the Denver Broncos, and then faith spaces were often the host spot uh-huh. for that. Sometimes there were some community organizations. The Broncos hosted the very first buyback in uh-huh. their parking lot uh, at the at Empower Field at Mile High. And then uh, we also worked with uh, Mending Roots, which works out of the, the Park Hill Golf Course that is now more of an open space, doesn't function as a golf course. But every, all the other events were held at churches. Yeah, so it's it's a beautiful thing that churches mm-hmm. are weaving its way into the little gun buyback program. Because one of the things I love about the gun buyback program and raw tools, I think what you've put your finger on is that a lot of people will say that guns in America are a huge problem and we need to do something about it. 
But when you get them to talk about what it is that we need to do about it, they kind of fumble around and they talk about passing more laws and that kind of thing. Or, but they don't know. There's nothing concrete that they that they are able to put their thumb on that they should be doing. And Raw Tools has done that. You have figured out a way for people to donate unwanted guns, turn them into garden tools, which I think is a fascinating process, but also teach nonviolence, de-escalation. I mean, you uh, on your website, which I would encourage everybody to go to Raw Tools' website, www.rawtools.com. Am I remembering that right? Uh, or dot .org. Dot .org. Yeah. Because it goes into everything that Raw Tools does as far as de-escalation, teaching people alternative ways to deal with violent situations. It's, it's a fascinating website. But I want to talk about your faith. What is? Tell me about your faith background. Because it sounds as though that your Christian faith has motivated you or drives kind of your work. Do you mind talking a little bit about your sure. faith background? Yeah, I grew up in a Mennonite family, um, born in Pennsylvania, moved to Colorado when I was seven. We attended a Mennonite church for a little bit, small church in Palmer Lake, Colorado. Um, and then as my brother and I got older, we started to, you know, get those friend relationships. And those pulled us into a, a non-denominational church in Monument, um, evangelical uh, kind of space, and uh, grew up in that. So a Mennonite family at home, but kind of in this atmosphere of evangelical spaces uh, even through college at Colorado Christian University, um, where one of my professors, you know, as I'm getting my biblical studies degree, you know, said, look at your roots. Um, all my professors had came from a different denomination. And he encouraged me to look into Anabaptism and how the Mennonite faith um, might still be appealing to me as I start to look for uh, what what I do next after college. And that was really key for me to kind of check back in and say, yeah, this is something I, that that gets to me at my core. And so I was a youth pastor in Colorado Springs, youth and young adult pastor, when this idea of swords to plowshares just uh, got stuck in my head. It doesn't, I don't have like this genesis moment of when Raw Tools started, but I do have kind of a lot of little little things um, that that instigated raw tools starting um, but it is definitely rooted within this idea of a nonviolent faith um, that acts more than it speaks um, and so yeah I find a lot of motivation um, from my Mennonite history and the theological background of the power of nonviolence often we think of guns as being powerful but nonviolence carries uh, a different kind of power uh, you might think of it as like a power with or a power under instead of a power over. Um, and that's that's really been a guiding piece for starting Raw Tools. And so, the, I mean, one of the foundations of, of the Mennonite Church, there are many, but one of the foundations is nonviolence, correct? Yeah, and it, it it's rooted in kind of a separation of church and state when Anabaptist means rebaptizing, and it was a derogatory term at the time in during the Reformation. And um, they didn't like that baptism um, happened at a young age, but also that it was tied to the census in many cases. And so, one, they wanted the decision to be like more of an adult or even like a youth or more of a grown-up. I'm making this decision out of my own volition. Mm -hmm. um, but also that if you 
if you kind of rebaptized yourself or didn't baptize your kids, then you were often met with violence from the state and even the church because they were they were right. married in that way, right? It right. was right. it was like a state religion almost. Um, and so, so that nonviolence was born out of that. That that became like a, a, a identifying characteristic of the state and the state church at that time is how they would respond to people that went against them. It was often with violence. And so Anabaptists would be nonviolent. We have a book called The Martyr's Mirror about church leaders and advocates for the Anabaptist faith that were killed by the state or the church. Oh, and, wow. their, and their stories were, were carried on. So um, nonviolence is a big part of it uh, and, and that kind of separation of church and state, but also kind of this independent way to decide, yeah, I want to follow Jesus um, not because the state says so, but because I say so. And so you went. So you grew up in Mennonite. You went to. Uh, you kind of uh, gravitated towards the evangelical church. Went to Colorado Christian University. Uh, you kind of your faith starts maturing, whole nonviolence, mm-hmm. and that did that lead you into the gun culture and pushing back against the gun culture? How did your faith? kind of bring you into interacting with the gun culture in America? Um, I, I think it's just where when you turn a gun into a garden tool, that's where you land. It wasn't, we didn't start raw tools necessarily to have a conversation with gun culture so much as we wanted to lift up the alternative culture. Uh-huh. Um, I mean, I grew up, uh, Dragon Man's is a, a paintball arena, outdoor uh, site, and gun range that's east of Colorado Springs. And in high school, one of my best friends and I would just go there all the time. We set up paintball in our own piece. And then as I got older, you know, I'd I'd go target shooting sometimes. I never owned a gun, but um, friends or relatives did. And so sometimes we'd do that. So my my experience with gun culture was much more um, kind of auxiliary it wasn't like deep Mm -hmm. into it Mm -hmm. i understand uh you know why people think it's fun to be in the gun culture and that's that's fine um but what guns to gardens and turning guns into garden tools sorts of plowshares wants to shed a light on is the negative aspect that that comes when that kind of gun culture gets so huge and will do anything to kind of maintain the culture at the expense of people's lives yeah you know um so just kind of put it all out of the table many people have talked to talk, heard me talk about this i'm a hunter uh i've had guns i didn't grow up with guns but kind of fell into it out of a desire to kind of a sport shooting hunting that mm-hmm. type of thing kind of in my early 20s and so throughout my entire adult uh, life i've i've had guns have a tremendous amount of training around guns and gun ownership responsible gun ownership and that the more I got involved with shooting and hunting and whatnot I was exposed to I think the underbelly Mm -hmm. of guns and gun ownership that it really is a frightening and ugly type of thing that uh, one of the things that I've learned and I've been introduced to is that there's within the gun community there is a whole section of people who really believe in responsible gun ownership, training, registration, mm-hmm. more tight gun laws. I mean, everything that that I think people who don't have guns want. I mean, everybody wants right. safety. 
But yet there's this underbelly of the NRA and this extreme God culture that is actually frightening. Mm-hmm. I mean, what it is that they believe in, what it is that they advocate. I mean, it's just it's just crazy what it is that, that they believe in. And that's what kind of leads me to the next thing I want to talk about is your book, uh, Beating Guns, subtitle is... Hope for People Who Are Weary of Violence. Beating Guns, Hope for People Who Are Weary of Violence. Mm-hmm. This is a book, this is a must-read book. Uh, you can buy it on Amazon. It is an audiobook, correct? Mm-hmm. Yep. Audiobook, you can listen to it on uh, Audible. But you can also, I really encourage you to read it so you can take your time going through some of the statistics and through some of the stories. Because i got to tell you something, it is eye-opening. And so tell me a little bit about how you got into the book. How, do you, how did you work with Shane? And how did you do the research and interviews around this book? Yeah, so um, Shane Claiborne and I have uh, been working together around this movement for 10 years. And in 2019, we co-wrote, or at least the book came out in 2019, uh, Beating Guns. And it was something where, at least like if getting into the weeds on the writing process, right, we each wrote everything we wanted in the book and then shared it. And it was edited and kind of mixed all together in a format that, that you have now. Um, and so, you know, Shane wrote some of it. I wrote some of it. We both wrote, you know, identif- similar things at points. Um, so it was it was a fun process. I mean, it's it was it's the only book I've ever been a part of writing, and it was a pretty, uh, pretty good experience to do that with someone like Shane Claiborne, who's who's written a lot of books before and knew the process. So um, a lot of it came from our experience of turning guns into garden tools and centering victims and survivors of gun violence. A lot of the stories in the book are from the events that we've done, people we've worked with, um, and and that's the, the heartbreaking part, but also the really hopeful part too, that there's this kind of paradox that you find there. You, fi- you hear that in uh, in the Bible as well, especially in the words of Jesus that you know there you have to hold in language like the kingdom is here but not yet, that we are in this space where where there's deep tragedy but also the ability to create deep hope and make you know transformative change in this. And so to your point about gun culture, you know, one of the things we learned in the book was that, you know, I think in our in our the greater dialogue in our society we can we can silo each other. We can say it's us versus them. And by doing that, we make us or them these monolithic things. So we can do that to gun owners where, in writing the book, I, I figured there would be a lot more than 5% of gun owners as NRA members, but it's only 5%. It's only 5%? Only 5% of gun owners are NRA members. Oh, so, you're kidding me. But they're wealthy. And the NRA itself Only is, 5%? Right, right. So that alone should just let us know that there's a giant spectrum of gun owners, just like there is a giant spectrum of what nonviolence looks like. Um, and so a large majority of gun owners want background checks. They want common sense gun laws that fit to the kind of well-regulated phrase in the Second Amendment to say that like, we can see over 40,000 lives are lost to gun violence each year, and that right. doesn't even... That doesn't even consider the people who are injured, which is three times that number. 
by guns. So you have 40,000 lethal gun incidents, and then you have 120,000 injuries from guns. So there's, these are people whose often lives are radically changed because they were shot and, and injured but survived. So and these are statistics just for the United States, correct? This is just the U.S., yeah. Wow, 40,000 guns. By far, we lead. Uh, I just saw something yesterday that uh, the U.S. has more mass shootings by early February than the rest of the uh, wealthy nations combined. Oh, And gosh. mass shootings are less than 2% of gun violence in America. Most gun violence does not happen in the, in the form of mass shootings. What do they happen? They uh, mostly in domestic cases. There's a gun. In, a way, the best way to illustrate this is a stat I like to say a lot. Um, a gun in the home is three times more likely to harm you or someone you love than an intruder. So it means that someone who knows the gun is there is going to be the one to use it um, far more often than you're going to use it against someone uh, oh. for self-defense. And that matters because self-defense is like the, is the number one reason uh -huh. people buy firearms. Right behind it, and often in tandem in that, is sports shooting, right? That's mm -hmm. part of training. If you're going to own a firearm, you should be training mm -hmm. to know how to use it safely. And that often pulls you into different sporting aspects of it. Um, but we see that kind of uh, healthy gun ownership can get lost mm -hmm. in kind of this... Uh, well, you can go in different ways. It could be toxic masculinity. It could be... Um, connected to that, uh, like this um, American identity of guns because it's in the Second Amendment. We've talked with people outside of the country that are baffled that we have such a founding law about firearms um, right. that is just elevated so high compared to other basic things we need for life. Um, they might say things like, well, I would agree with them too, like health insurance. Or why, is, why are guns codified but something like health insurance isn't? And this is, these are international perspectives that are just putting a magnifying glass on our unique American context of the saturation of guns. More guns than people in the, in the country. Um, More guns shops than McDonald's restaurants. That's correct. one of the statistics in your book. Right, yeah. That I read that and I went, you got to be kidding me. More mm -hmm. gun shops than McDonald's restaurants? Yeah, and more, more gun shops than Starbucks in the world. Oh, are in, in the U.S. That's how easy it is to get firearms. <laughs> and that's not always like the traditional uh, box store, gun store, or pawn shop. It's also, I can have be a federally licensed dealer and run it out of my house. Yeah. It, there's a lot of people who do that, who train. I took gun safety training um, in a little uh, uh, office building, right, that had... Uh, you know, offices on either side, but we were demonstrating with unloaded guns, you know, how to be safe operators of them. Um, and so there, there's, you can find it anywhere. Um, so it's, it's just really this unique American context that is different than anywhere else, which means that we have to, we have to, especially as Christians, who are one of the largest gun-owning demographics in the country, um, step back and say, is it worth... Uh, my ability to get as many guns as I want versus the amount of life lost. So I want to talk a little bit about that because you mentioned in the book, you talked about it in the book, you just talked about it now, Christians are the largest percentage of gun owners in the United States, correct? They're, they're one of them, yeah. I think if you're, 
if you're going to add every demographic, um, males are the largest gun owning yeah. demographic, right? Would you say but white males are the largest? White males are one of the largest two. Like it, it depends how you splice all these demographics. But Christians, if you were just if every if every gun owner had to um, assign themselves either some type of faith or even agnostic or atheist, Christians would be the largest among wow. that. Among why that do Christians? Why do you think that? Um, some sort of culture with the American context. Um, a lot of that is in the Bible Belt in the American South. Um, there's some traditional conservatism about the Second Amendment and gun ownership, and and biblical identity um, you'll often find theological arguments for gun ownership uh, for self-preservation so that we can spread the gospel kind of thing um, never mind that pulling a trigger would remove the ability for you to spread the gospel to whoever <laughs> your gun is pointed to um, so it's it's a unique American context that is rooted in some of our laws some of our culture and some of our theology I mean, you you talk about is it Jerry Falwell's university? Mm-hmm. Talk a little bit about that. That blew me away. Yeah, they have they put a shooting range in. Um, they have some. At, what uh, is the name? What Liberty you, University? Liberty. Uh, he's not there anymore. Um, was kicked out recently because of some other uh, unsavory things. But um, yeah, it's and it's not really limited to just Liberty. They were kind of the most vocal about it. But there is this way of. Um, even Christian nationalism has a large impact on this, and I would say that, you know, Liberty University and Follow in particular really a kind of uh, might be an archetype for that, where um, God, guns, and country, and they'll even say sometimes not necessarily in that order, right? Um, so it's it's this part and parcel of American Christianity that. Um, feels really unsettling to me, as I mentioned just in my Anabaptist faith, right, the separation of church and state, and when I start to see them um, kind of comb together themselves or overlap, uh, that Venn diagram gets more and more like a circle instead of just a little overlap. Um, You start to see how it it ruins the ability for Christians to live an authentic faith the more toxic you get into gun culture. Yeah. You know, um, like one of the things that I even hold my ch- myself in check on is that Jesus never picked up a gun. Mm-hmm. He never picked up a club. He never did anything. He was completely nonviolent to the to the point of willing to be arrested, willing to be uh, beaten, willing to be crucified, and he never, as he said, called down the angels to mm-hmm. put up a fight. And the, you know, and I hold that in my own life as I hunt, as I sport shoot, that I have, I have, I remind myself, you know, that I'm participating in something that has an ugly, black, dark, shadow side of it. And, and I, I guess I'm struck by the number of Christians, as I found in your book, who embrace that and embrace the whole, I'm going to shoot you to defend you I'm mm-hmm. or to, dis- to destroy you, to pre- protect myself or whatnot, that Christians are the largest, one of the largest percentages of gun owners. I just, I just blows my mind. Mm-hmm. It just blows my mind. All right. The other thing I want to talk about is guns in schools. This was uh, something that I 
was my jaw dropped. And you said in the book, you can't make this stuff up. And that is the uh, kindergartenship. Mm-hmm. We were talking about kids, uh, guns in schools, because I think that's a huge thing. I mean, here in Littleton, there was the shootings at Columbine High School. There's the shooting at Littleton or Arapahoe High School, the shooting at the STEM school. There's a lot of shootings here in this end of town. And so the whole notion of how do we stop guns, uh, gun violence in schools is huge. One of the things that I've done in my ministry, because I was a first responder to the shooting at Columbine High School. Hmm. So throughout my ministry, I've said there's got to be a way to stop shootings at high schools or in schools in general. And so I've done a tremendous amount of research. I've talked with school administrators, police, government officials, everything I can to try to understand how to stop gun violence in schools. And one of the things that always comes up is we need to arm more, well, not from administrators or from government officials, but from gun advocates is that we need to arm teachers. Mm -hmm. And that then in your book, what blew me away is this whole kinder guardian program. So first talk about the kinder guardian program. Tell people about that. That just was shocking. Yeah, I mean, it was an attempt to, um, (coughs) I I haven't looked into it since the book came out to see if it's still going on, but it's essentially an attempt to um, this idea that some lawmakers who were at the time elected yes we're talking federal, about congressmen yeah federally elected people um who wanted to basically create gun training for kids as young as kindergarten and so they they did the twist and made it kindergarten um but that's that's uh like a symptom of the larger problem within um the marketing of guns for instance recently there's something that was on display at um NRA conventions and a lot of gun shows called the JR-15, which is uh, a, a twist on AR-15, but a smaller version of it for kids, a 22. Like JR Junior? Yeah, Junior, yeah. And that um, often we can think that, like when you hear kindergarten and, yeah, let's have five-year-olds with guns on yeah. their hips, yeah. um, you think, man, this is so stupid, they must be tone deaf. Um, but they're not. They're setting the tone. They know exactly what they're doing because it helps sell more guns and the the more uh it's it's like the the more tragedy that happens right we it's a another way to sell a gun because whatever that tragedy is the gun is the way to stop it from happening to you happening to you and we need to get better at being public about the ways that do work one of the problems in our country is that every state has different gun laws right so it's hard to build consistency, you mentioned earlier, everyone, it's hard to find kind of like that. There is no, uh, you know, magic answer to this, right? That there's not this one solution fits all because gun violence enters at different intersections into our lives, right? Suicide, uh, domestic violence, police violence, street violence, accidental shootings, right? Kids, um, 10 kids die every day because someone's not storing their gun right. And that's 10 kids die on, on average, every day. On average, under the age of 18. That is how I'm defining a kid. Um, so it's it's so much bigger than, uh, than trying to find that one solution. It's saying that guns have so much, has so infiltrated our community that it's affecting all these different spaces because we, they've been marketed as the ultimate problem solver. And so we, it's tempting to find 
the alternative ultimate problem solver when really we need to be stepping back a little bit and see what is impacting us uh, and choosing violence and firearms are the number one mode of violence in nearly every case. Um, especially with males, it's the number one choice for homicide, number one choice for suicide, um, because they're designed <laughs> to do what people want to do in those cases, right? To end someone's life. Um, and sadly, often some, it's when they turn it on themselves, right? There's uh, two thirds of gun violence nearly, and that transfers to almost every context is suicide. Um, like in your book, you talk, and I've heard this statistic before, but uh, the number of veterans Mm-hmm. who take their life, it's an astronomical number per day of veterans who kill themselves with a gun. Do you, does that statistic, you know that right off the top of your head? Yeah, and that, now uh, it's about 23 veterans per day, um, that give or take one or two, uh, and the number one mode of choice is a firearm. It's not, not all 22 or 23 of those use a firearm, but that... Um, you know, the, the trauma that they see as being part of the military, especially if they're um, combat veterans, uh, had, takes a toll. So now more, more military service people are passing after their service than during their service. Um, so there's, there's, that's another kind of layer to all of this, right? Right. That, right. Um, even in my own community, they're trying to find the language to say that, you know, we need to recognize when you're navigating crisis so that we can um, remove a firearm from your home if necessary. Like your family can do that voluntarily, right? right? Say, hey, I'm, uh, life happened and it's hard for me right now. It's probably not a good idea to have a gun at, my, at the ready for me. So can my relative or friend store it for me? Um, Colorado has the um, extremist protection order where if that's not the case and you are making threats to yourself or others, then there can have legal action. That's the red flag law? Right, yeah. Um, so that's kind of like the, the street name for it is red flag law. ERPO um, uh-huh. is, the, is the acronym, extreme risk protection order, where if you demonstrate that you're a risk to yourself or others and you are a firearm owner, legal action can be taken. Um, it's most often... Uh, the denser the population uh, or more progressive law enforcement is, the more likely that those legal actions are taken. But also a product of that law is the um, availability from gun shop owners who say, hey, suicide is a problem within, within our society in general, but also within gun owners, that if one of our gun owners who frequents our store is an out of getting crisis, we'd like to store their gun for free or for very minimal cost, like five bucks a month, um, until they're ready to, to, to have it again, until they feel like their, their life is back in order and they, don't, they won't put themselves at risk or others at risk with it. Um, so there's voluntary options have also blossomed out of that because people don't want that legal action to come in and kind of threaten their gun rights. Um, unfortunately, sometimes that might be necessary, and it saves a lot of lives. So you're going to get different answers on that, on how people feel about that law. No matter who you talk to, law enforcement, in one place feels different about it than law enforcement in another. Sometimes that uh, is largely defined by rural or urban um, or somewhere in the middle. So there's, there's different thoughts on, on that too and how, that's, how that works. Um, thinking of your question about how do we stop school shootings, one of the big things, and even in the Colorado legislature right now, is raising the age limit to buying certain types of guns or all guns. We know that mass shootings are the one of the largest demographic are men under 25. So what if we 
um, make semi-automatic gun purchases above age 25 or assault style weapons above age 25. Um, could that help with this? But we need to see consistency across that. So to, Colorado already has universal background checks, but neighboring states don't. So how do we help uh, make that more consistent across, across the country? Because that's when I think that we'll, we'll be able to measure the effect of gun legislation, um, positive or negative, uh, when we have more consistency from state to state. Um, and and person-to-person and -person transfers are a large part of that. So having universal background checks, always needing to go through a licensed dealer um, to make that gun transfer, even if you're selling me one of your hunting guns, we should meet at a gun dealership so they can run a, uh, a background check right. and, and faci help facilitate that conversation. It might cost 10 bucks, right. but let's be sure of each other. Um, let's have kind of that, that third party arbitrate that in a way um, right. to honestly give the person selling the gun some peace of mind too. Right, right. You know, uh, so a couple things. Uh, if somebody wants to, is it ERPO? E-R-P-O. How does somebody go about initiating that? Do you know how to do that? Uh, that's a really good question, and it actually was a focus of a recent Colorado Public Radio story. So if uh, people hear this, you should be able to look on Colorado Public Radio and see. They did a study over the last three years about uh, what difference does it make if uh, if a civilian issues a does an ERPO request for someone in their household or their family versus if law enforcement does it. Um, also, if law enforcement does it, does it matter where they are if it goes through or not? And um, by far, the city and county of Denver has the most uh, extremist protection orders filed and the most approved, um, where in El Paso County, where I'm at, uh, I think it's been taken, it's been used two or three times. Oh, like only two may, or like three maybe times? Once or, well, maybe once or twice oh my um, gosh. per year in the last three years. So whereas Denver is dozens. Um, so there's it depends on the culture of law enforcement, um, but also it's really it's a complicated process if you're doing it on your own. And if you do it on your own, you're less likely to get approval from the judge for the extremist protection order um, because of kind of this idea that people are trying to get at other people by putting in these orders to take away their guns, whether or not they think they're at really at risk. But when that comes from law enforcement, it's kind of like that next level of escalation that makes it feel like more of a, a, a real request when you put in that ERPO from law enforcement compared to when you do it by yourself. So, um, Does you, somebody need an attorney? Can they call the police? What should they do? Based on the story, um, there's, it feels like it should be in tandem with law enforcement to have mm -hmm. success mm -hmm. um, and kind of bring in that, that extra level of accountability as far as you're not just trying to pull someone's leg. You're not just doing an ERPO request because you don't like your friend or your family right. member. You're right. doing it because you feel like you're legitimately at risk or that person um, is putting themselves at risk, is at high risk of suicide. So. Um, there's different things that can be brought in, like testimony, references, uh, mental health practitioners uh, could be a part of it. But um, in law enforcement, it seems to be the best way to have that um, successful. However, they're also working on legislation right now 
um, to see how they can adjust ERPO laws um, to make it a little bit more accessible without losing its integrity. So they're, they're like we put in the law a few years ago, uh, we've seen how it in action for a few years, what do we need to do to it to, to make it more effective so that everybody respects it more, right? It's not just this thing to control gun owners, but it's something to help save lives. So I know that there, there might be people who are listening to this podcast because this will be something that listened to by a lot of people. If I'm somebody, by hearing this podcast, and I'm going, oh, my gosh, this is me, I need to get rid of my my – uh, brother has a gun. My loved mm-hmm. one has a gun. They're threatening to either harm themselves. We got to get this gun out of their people. Mm-hmm. Should they call nine one one? If they feel like they're at immediate risk, then like or usually nine one one is something like you're in the middle of the situation. Okay. Right? Like and um, but if if you're removed from an immediate situation, if you feel safe, you should reach and lean into your relationships. Right. As, even if you're coming at this from a faith perspective. Um, get people in the room that this person respects and trusts and have, um, for lack of a better word, like an intervention of some sorts. Obviously, um, you don't want to be surprising or abrupt or anything like that. You don't want to escalate the situation. So, um, But the best thing I would recommend is to do it in relationship with others. And if you need to, um, involve folks that this person trusts um, and hopefully it doesn't have to get to the law enforcement space, but if you feel like that's the most comfortable and safe space for you, then that might be your best shot to go. Okay. Well, then let's kind of go down this path a little bit because uh, this is something that I was really impressed on your website, the Raw Tools website, again, www.rawtools.org, to find out more about what Raw Tools does, is that it's not just a gun buyback, but it's teaching alternative ways to deal with conflict. Mm-hmm. And I was really impressed by that, that you really are investing yourself in this type of work. So let's talk about that. You just mentioned the whole scenario of somebody has um, a weapon and you're frightened for them, how to deal with that. You bring in loved ones to do an intervention of sorts, like we would do some with someone who is uh, dealing with a drug addiction or an alcohol mm-hmm. addiction, something like that. But one of the things you mentioned is safety in a home. People buy guns to be safe in a home. And one of the things you mentioned that there are other ways to deal with the whole threat of somebody breaking into your home. What, let's go down that path. What should people do if th- people are thinking about, I want to be safe in my home from a burg- burglar at night, an mm-hmm. intruder at night? Let's talk about that. Well, especially since we're partnering for a buyback here coming up, one of the neat, most creative ones that I've seen recently, um, it was before the pandemic, they, instead of giving gift cards, they give vouchers for pet adoptions, specifically yeah. dogs, um, because there are studies that show a dog in the home is a better deterrent than a firearm in a home huh. for, for break-ins because the dog is like an alarm that makes noise, and you can't really like cut the wires to, to, to shut it off because it knows you're around before you're in the door. So it starts barking. Or if it's a big dog, you might be afraid of it harming you, so you're just not going to test that house out. Um, but also, a lot of a lot of home invasions, by design, aren't supposed to happen while you're there. So right. a result in a lot of um, uh, violence with firearms are stolen firearms that people are taking out of homes when someone isn't there. So you might have a gun in the home to protect you, but 
more often than not, the intruder doesn't want you to be there when they intrude. So if you're not and you leave your gun there, they, it's, it's an opportunity for theft. And that's a big um, reason why people bring guns to buybacks is because of the um, chance for theft. One, maybe they don't know how to know how or have the option or can afford to store it properly. Maybe they have just a cable lock on the firearm and it's not in a safe kind of space. Or the safe can just be grabbed out of the nightstand and they'll break into it later when they can. Right. Um, so, so there's that, that factor in that a gun in the home is at risk for other things. It's not just there to protect you and nothing else can happen. There's a lot of other possibilities um, that go around that. But also things like having you know, a ring doorbell. Uh, or something with video that can capture people, um, video of people or evidence of people, adds that kind of layer of accountability. Um, so if the fear of someone intruding your home or needing a firearm for self-defense, there are other things like a pet. It doesn't even have to be really be a dog. I've heard of people talk about birds, right, that can mm-hmm. make a lot of noise or, or, and are trainable in that way too. Um, or it could be an alarm system. It can be... Uh, a camera. Um, I I know in in uh, in our own home we had uh, one of those fake cameras that was there when we bought it, but it was one of those like really almost like the kind of surveillance camera you see in a movie. So you go to the front door and there's this giant thing staring <laughs> at you, and it's a lot less welcoming. Like you don't want your guests walking in with this. Right. So um, we don't. I don't advocate for like Fort Knox kind of surveillance, <laughs> right? But but something that is there that lets the person know that there's a level of accountability, like either someone's watching or this dog knows and is going to alert our neighbors. So then someone else is going to be watching kind of thing. Um, and, and, you know, even um, police violence is a real piece of this too. So depending on the neighbor you ha- neighborhood you're in or even the relationships that you have within your neighborhood, you need to be aware of how um, calling the police can often escalate situations. Um, so there's a lot of layers to this. Um, I say that um, because that there's even doing these buybacks, one of the big criticisms is that traditionally a lot of buybacks are held by law enforcement and people that you don't want to have a gun or they want to get rid of it but they're afraid of risk of arrest aren't going to bring it to somewhere where there's a uniformed officer. Right. So how great it is, it, is it instead of uniformed officers, we have like clergy callers or something else out there that identifies who's, who's do, being a part of that buyback. Um, and then there's even, uh, I was helped write a a curriculum called fear not, which is an acronym, um, about, um, how churches can create plans to respond to active violence. It's not always gun violence, but there's other forms of violence or belligerent, um, behavior maybe within often to even to levels of abuse, but it could just be someone who's like continually interrupting your sermon and it's just a nuisance, um, how can we reach out and get that person that what they need? What are the resources we have? There's a great um, acronym called ALICE, which is Alert, Lockdown, Inform, Confront, and Evacuate. Um, it's kind of the alternative to Run, Hide, Fight. Um, okay, st- slow that down. Yeah. Okay, Run, Hide, Fight is that uh, is who put... F- so there's, there's those fight, flight, freeze, run, hide, fight. It's kind of like the common... Um, response or the way we describe how we respond in those kind of paralyzing situations right um, or those those moments that you have to make a decision sometimes you fight sometimes you 
freeze and sometimes you flee. Mm-hmm. Um, this up new acronym that kind of came out in the last 10 years called ALICE. Slow that down. Yeah. ALICE. Alert, lock down, inform, confront, and evacuate. So instead of having these kind of three responses, ALICE gives you five, wa- five ways that you can respond to a situation of active violence. Um, it was designed for active shooters, but can be used in other places where, um, one, it's rare for, for that kind of mass shooting to happen in spaces like a church, which is what this curriculum was for. Um, it does happen. I'm not minimizing when it does. Um, but that when it does happen, um, it's rare for it to happen. And it's, you might also not be in the space where the actual shooting has happened. So the best thing for you to do might be to evacuate. The best thing you might be to do is alert the other people in the building. Um, or inform um, neighbors, police, law enforcement. Um, it, it might be uh, to uh, lock down and shut the door, lock it, cover the window kind of thing, and stay until it's safe. Um, and then uh, you get to that confront space, which really is where all these arguments boil down to. What do you do when the gun's pointed at you or someone you love right. and you're in the same spot? Right. Um, so do you, do you have that gun on the hip? Um, I would argue that's not the best response. Um, even law enforcement are saying that when you're in a public space and you respond with a gun and law enforcement shows up, it's hard for them to tell who, who right. is the originator, like who's, right. the, who's the instigator in all this. That even happened in, I think it was Arvada, right, where um, the good guy with the gun shot the bad guy, then police showed up, thought he was the bad guy, and shot and killed him. Um, and so there's all these different kind of complexities to how you respond to this where um, – Unfortunately, even how here in the recent school shootings you mentioned earlier, it was students who tackled shooters right. that saved lives. So usually when you have mass shootings, you're within a mass of people, and often the best way to respond is to just actively tackle or surround that person because that will get that will happen the quickest compared to even even when you get people law enforcement to respond within minutes, those are long seconds and bullets can be fired a lot faster. Uh, a lot of bullets can be fired in 60 seconds. So um, responding to active violence might mean tackling the person with the gun. Um, I happened in Colorado Springs at the uh, shooting at the nightclub that, that there were other yeah. people in the nightclub who tackled the individual right. and brought them down. Right, yeah. Yep. And, um, yeah, there's so much to, to talk about there. But in, in people that I've I've worked with, both in law enforcement and people who were survivors of mass shootings, um, went down the path of maybe I should conceal carry. I don't want this to happen to me again, but ended up not purchasing the firearm even after the trainings because they didn't want to do to someone else what was done to them. Right. No matter what that person was doing to them, they couldn't, they couldn't do to that person. They couldn't take their life like their sibling's life was taken, or they couldn't do to that person's mom or that person's sister what was done to them when losing their loved one. Um, and so it's starting to be more um, vocal about like the best way to stop a good guy with a gun is not, or a bad guy with a gun is not a good guy with a gun, but to have these kind of physical ways to um, stop it if it's happening. But really the best way to stop a bad guy with a gun is to offer them help and resources before they ever get to the gun. Right. There's a lot of lines that are crossed. 
it's gun violence is guns and violence. We have to address both of those. That's a big point in our book. It's not a gun problem or a heart problem or a gun problem and a violence problem or a sin problem or whatever language we're using. It's both. And both of those, we, have, we might have a violence problem and we might have a gun problem, but we, but we definitely have both. And when they mix, we get tragedy. And so we have to take a long, hard look about how we solve conflict. And so we're deeply rooted in restorative practices. A lot of that is dialogue. How do we have dialogue with each other? Um, we have a curriculum that's uh, faith-based that um, just lets people talk about how they feel about guns without having to pass judgments with each other, but just to say, wow, I didn't know that trauma happened that led you to own a gun, or I didn't know that trauma ha- happened that led you to never want to be near guns. Mm-hmm. That that trauma can inform both both uh, kind of ways that that comes out in praxis, how we see it in action. Um, so it's important that we listen to each other's stories, how they inform what we believe, where we're at now, and then how we might work together um, to eliminate gun violence in our com- in our communities. I had a um, doctor who um, convened one of the most diverse groups of people to address gun violence. And he, has, he said something that really, really stuck with me is that we often talk about um, shootings as if they can be accidents, especially accidental shootings especially, but none of them are accidents. Not one, right. something could have been done. Either there was a bullet in the chamber and we didn't check, and so it was accidentally shot, or it wasn't stored properly. I mean, proper storage is like the gun separate from ammunition and unloaded is a safe way to store it. But self-defense clouds our ability to do that. Um, but there are always preventative measures to every instance of gun violence. And so are we doing enough to do that? And as a society, we continue to kind of, you know, not the left hand doesn't let the right hand know what it's doing because it, it, it couldn't take it. And so we need to really come to terms with what we've become comfortable with without action. And 42,000 lives last year. That's just stunning. Yeah, when we wrote the book, it was just over 100 in 2019. Now it's over 110 every day that dies from gun violence. And if we started soon after the Sandy Hook shooting, and that was 20 kids, well, now, every other day, 20 more kids. Ah. Or every week, it's 20 elementary school-age kids. So those type of... We are attracted to mass shootings because it's a lot at once. Mm-hmm. But a lot at once is happening spread out through the country every single day. Wow. Okay, let's talk about February 25th here at Columbine United Church. Mm-hmm. If you have an unwanted gun in your yeah. home and you want to get rid of the weapon... Let's talk a little bit about what they need to do. Talk about what it, what it, the process sure. is. So it's a drive-through model. Um, one of the blessings of COVID, if you can say that, is that buybacks don't happen as often where you're kind of standing in a line with a clear bag with your gun in it waiting for it to be processed. Um, they change to a drive-through model. So bring your unloaded firearm uh, locked in your trunk or in the back seat if you don't have a trunk. Uh, it's, you'll come to the parking lot of Columbine United Church. Um, there'll be those of us like myself who are trained to get, we'll get the firearm out, take it to a safe clearing barrel, clear it, make sure that there isn't ammunition in it, which is very often no one is bringing it that way. 
um, but we will check it. Um, and then it's disabled in front of you. How does, what does it mean disabled? What does that look like? So we take three cuts through the receiver of the firearm. So you'll, we'll check the firearm, we'll record the serial number, and then we'll um, take it to a saw and have it cut up. And then once, once your firearm, if you bring multiple, once they're cut up, then you'll get your gift cards and you'll be free to leave. Um, so it's about, you know, if you're first in line, it'd probably be about 10 minutes till you're done. Um, we have multiple saw stations, eight to 10 of them, so we can facilitate multiple cars at a time. Um, there'll be an anonymous survey that you can fill out. You don't have to, um, but it just helps inform us about why people are turning in their firearms. So um, it's very safe, very easy process. Um, if you have an unwanted firearm, often people inherit firearms while they themselves are not gun owners. Um, maybe they don't want the handgun, but they want to keep their hunting rifle. Um, maybe there's there's various reasons. We had multiple people um, tell us different stories about why they gave us uh, their guns that they didn't want anymore last year. Um, and it might be different for, for everybody. But if you know someone who's wondering about this or trying to make the decision, talk to them. Um, maybe they don't bring it to this buyback, but they might bring it to the next one. Uh, guns to Gardens, Metro Denver. Is planning another one on April 15th, but this first one on February 25th um, is is the next one uh, in the Denver area here. So 6375 South Platte Canyon Road, uh, Littleton, Colorado 80123 is the address of Columbine United Church, February 25th. Uh, this has been a fantastic, fascinating interview, Mike. Thank you so much. Again, I'm going to go over to buy the book or look at the book. You can either order it. They can get it on Kindle. It's on Amazon.com. Mm -hmm. An audible download. Again, it's Beating Guns. Mm -hmm. That's the and the subtitle again. Hope for people who are weary of violence. You can also get it uh, at RawTools.org through our shop. Um, the audio version is fun because Shane and I went back and forth and recorded it. Um, so, uh, yeah. However you want to get to that, it, it helps us and would appreciate having a conversation with you if you get the book. Good, www.rawtools.org. Mike, I cannot thank you enough for driving up from Colorado Springs early this morning to record this. Thank you for all of your work and advocacy for people in uh, people of faith to setting a vision for people of faith, an alternative way for us to be Christians together, as well as citizens together in the United States. Um, thank you very much. This is, again, Steve Poos Benson, the Cowboy Jesus Podcast. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Take care.